Well, last week we started in the prophet Joel. And uh, if you weren't here, let me just recap. The people of Israel had been unfaithful to God. They'd broken the covenant that God had put in front of them. Now, it helps to understand something about covenant. Covenant is, it's like a treaty, where it's even maybe like a will, the last will and testament of somebody. And in these particular covenants that God was making with his people, there was an expectation of, first of all, God says, I am the stronger party, you are the weaker party. I am going to be good to you, and in return for my goodness, I expect you to do this, whatever it is. This is a very common form of treaty in the ancient world. Uh, you find it in all sorts, attested in all sorts of ancient literature. People made these treaties one nation to another, even a god to his people. And God made this similar sort of treaty. Now, I think that sometimes when we read the Old Testament, and we talked about this last week, we get the feeling that, wow, God seems really angry a lot of the time. Some have suggested that, well, the God of the Old Testament must be an entirely different God from that of the New Testament. But that's because folks haven't understood the nature of God's relationship with his people. They haven't understood it because, frankly, in the 21st century, we don't do very well with judgment. Uh, A lot of the time, we're kind of like grown-up children. Let us do whatever we want. Nobody stop me. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. Now, we know that part of life, part of living together is letting people know that, well, that thing that you're about uh, is not a great thing. And we do it because we love them, I hope. We can do it for other reasons. But, but love sometimes compels us to speak uncomfortable truths into other people's lives. And God does the same. See, when God made this covenant with the people of Israel, he said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you. I will give you prosperity. I will give you freedom from oppression. I will make you a great nation. I'll send you the rains in their season, all these sorts of things. So when we start reading in the book of Joel, and it says there's been a plague of locusts, there's been a terrible drought, and now there's an invading army. If we're following the story, we shouldn't be thinking, wow, they sure are unlucky, or wow, God sure doesn't care about his people. We should be thinking the people of Israel seem to have broken the covenant with God. God gave them the law. He said, this is how you will keep the covenant. You you obey my law. This is an oversimplification, but it's a helpful one for right now. And you haven't been doing it. You haven't been doing it in your external actions, and you haven't been doing it in your hearts. And so now I am going to not only withdraw the blessings of the covenant, but I am going to send the curses upon you as well. Notice then, that what God does in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, through Joel chapter 2, verse 11, it's not about anger. It's about grace and mercy. God is saying to his people, you have gone wrong, and you need to come back. Now, we as Christians are not bound to the law in the same way that the Jews were. We know this because no one tells you you need to keep much of the Jewish law. Do any of you, uh, for example, do you have clothes on right now that are made of more than one type of fabric? Anybody? Do you need to check the the list somewhere? I, I can't get to mine, but did you know that's against the Jewish law? Do you know why? 
That's okay, nobody. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's because God had called his people out to be one and to be pure. And he said, even the way that you dress ought to reflect this. That you don't mix and you don't mingle. You are absolute in your loyalty to me. So it's not an arbitrary law, first of all, but it's also not a law that you and I have to keep. You want to know why? That's for the book of Hebrews, and someday we'll do a sermon series on this. But just to make it short and simple for now, it's because Jesus Christ has come along and offered us a new covenant in his blood. And our obedience to God now does not consist primarily in keeping the Old Testament law, but primarily in being people of faith. And as we talked about last week, if you missed this last week, I wish you were here, but that's okay. We're going we're gonna to recap it right now. Faith is not just, here are the six things that you must assent to about God. There is a test when you get to the pearly gates, and you need to be able to say true or false correctly. You think that's what God cares about? Of course not. It's a bunch of nonsense. Even your professors and your teachers didn't really care about that. They cared that you knew the material, not whether or not you could pass the test. But let me put it to you a, a different way. See, faith isn't primarily about, do I have the right answers to certain questions? Faith is primarily about, do I trust the right person with my past, present, and future? We illustrated it last week by pulling out the chair, and I'm not going to do it again this week. You're going to have to be content with me describing it. But saying, I can believe that the chair will hold me up. And I can affirm that in my head. I can tell all my friends about that, but that's not faith. Faith is sitting in the chair. Faith is putting your money where your mouth is. And see, that's the case for us as followers of Jesus Christ as well. Faith is obedience, not for the sake of obedience, but because we trust the one who has commanded us and who has called us. Sometimes it's a very passive sort of trust. I cannot... I can't make myself right with God. You know, I've sinned, and I can't fix that. I'm going to have to trust that God will take care of it. Faith is also, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said those things, and I trust him. So that's what I'm going to pattern my life after. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German Christian in, uh, he died actually at, uh, just two or three weeks before the Allies liberated his prison in Nazi Germany. And he wrote a book uh, on discipleship. And it, he says, uh, in order to have faith, we must obey. And in order to obey, we must have faith. They have to both be present. There's no such thing as faith without obedience. But there's no true obedience to God without faith as well. Because what's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God. They belong together. So our job then is to give God our faith. And when we don't, or when we find holes in our faith, when we find inadequacies in our faith, where we're say, we might even be saying, like, I believe that that's true, but we are not living it out. Faith is not accompanied by obedience or vice versa then God can also withdraw the blessings of the new covenant to us. Now, uh, there are lots of things that you could say about that, but let me just try and boil it down to this. As followers of Jesus Christ, there are certain gifts that we get for living our lives every day. Power, 
to resist sin by the Holy Spirit. Assurance, not, not absolute certainty in every moment of our lives, but rather something in us that is saying, God loves you, God has rescued you. Assurance of our salvation. We get joy in the midst of trial because our faith tells us that our trials aren't purposeless and pointless but are making us like Christ and proving us already to be like Christ. We have these different gifts. You could go to a number of different places in the Bible to talk about what are, what are the blessings of the covenant. Maybe the easiest one to go to is in the book of Galatians. You've heard me do it before and hear about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You might not have picked up all of those. That's okay. I gave you the reference. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. So if you want to know, am I receiving the gifts of the new covenant? You might take a look at your life and say, am I growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Am I growing in those things? And if you are, then most likely you're in a good place covenant-wise. But what happens when we aren't? See, that was the point of the sermon last week, is that when, when the blessings of the covenant seem to be withdrawn, and we seem to be getting something else, worry in place of assurance, or something along those lines, that is God's invitation to us to look into our own hearts and say, have I withdrawn my faith from God? Am I not giving him my covenant faithfulness? And if we find that that's the truth, what do we do? The answer maybe is, is obvious. We talk about it a fair amount in, in our faith. We do it together every week in church. Remember that confession of sin that we did? We, basically, we repent. That's our job. What does God say to his people? He's, he said, locusts, drought, invading army, even now. Chapter 2, verse 12, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. That word return, that's repent. Repent. In Greek, my Greek is much better than my uh, Hebrew, by the way. Not as good as my English, though. Uh, in Greek, this word is metanoeo. And it, it has this idea of change your mind. It has this idea of turn around. Not 360 degrees, that never does anyone any good. Turn around 180 degrees and go in a different direction. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, I gave this book to a non-Christian friend of mine recently, and so I'm rereading it as he is reading it too. And I, I came across a passage where C.S. Lewis says, uh, did, you, did you ever, did you realize, said, that we can turn back the clock, and that sometimes it's the very best thing that we could do? He's speaking of the same sort of idea here. If we've got a wrong idea, if we've replaced a right idea with a wrong idea, turn back the clock. Go back to where you were. Repent. That's what God says. If you find that these gifts of the covenant have been withdrawn from you, search your heart, and if you find that your faith is broken somewhere, if you find that you have sinned by not giving God your whole faith, repent. 
And I want to tell you about, I want to tell you four things about repentance this morning. I want to tell you about uh, how we repent. I want to tell you about uh, who ought to repent, or maybe how many is even a better way of saying it. They want to tell you two reasons why we repent. So let's start with how. That's the beginning of the passage. It seems like a good place to start. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to your God. Heart seems to be what's in view here, isn't it? He says it twice in the passage. Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart. Well, what does he mean by that? I think that we've got at least something of an idea right off the bat. Because if you say, I feel it in my heart, or, you know, I poured my heart into this project that we've been working on, or I love you with all my heart, you have this sense, which I think carries over into the biblical sense here, of I really mean it. I really mean it. It's not about an outward show. If I love you with all my heart, it's not that sometimes I do things that are loving. It's I feel this compelling urge and, and, and emotion and affection inside of me that transforms who I am on the outside. I think that's part of what God is getting to here. He means, at least in part, he says, return to me with all your heart, rend your heart and not with not your garments. He means, mean it. In repentance, we should mean it and not just go through the motions. Now, uh, he gives us some examples. He says, you know, real repentance can be accompanied and often and usually is accompanied with things like fasting and weeping and mourning. I'm so sorry. Maybe it even moves you to tears. Maybe it even moves you so far that you're, you can't eat. Turn to your heart. Uh, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. But be careful, he says, rend your heart and not your garments. You know, if, you have, if you read in the Bible, when something sad happens, something tragic or disastrous happens, people tear their clothes. And it's a way of saying to everyone around them, I, I am forlorn. I am hurting so much. I am in mourning. It was actually a pretty significant act as well because, see, I don't know how many sets of clothes you have in your closet, but most of us, I think, have enough that we can go at least a week or two without wearing the same sorts of stuff. I hope it's at least true with your underwear. But no matter what, we've got, we got a lot of clothes. You might have more than one pair of shoes. You might have work boots, and you got your casual shoes, and maybe your flip-flops because we live in California, after all, and you've got your, maybe a pair of dress shoes, I'm not going to do any gender talking this morning, by the way. So we've all got lots of clothes. We'll just leave it at that. We've all got lots of clothes. But that's not what it was like for people in the ancient world. Most people had one set of clothes, or maybe two. And ripping those clothes apart was a big deal. But God says, I don't care about your outward show care about what's going on in your heart. You know, you and I need to hear that, don't we? We live in a very transactional sort of society where we say, you know, 
I, I did, you did this, so you owe that. Right? I, you go to the store, you know, you know how much things cost right off the bat. It's, the price is right there, plus however much the sales tax is. But, you know, for the most part, you know how much it costs. That's not what the world used to be like. And that's not what restoring relationship is like either. I've counseled uh, husbands and wives going through difficult periods in their marriage, even that go to a point of breaking. And you know, most folks, when they are in that deep of conflict where they're considering divorce or they're going through divorce, they don't have a list of if you just do X, Y, and Z, everything will be fine. Say, I'm so hurt, I'm so broken, I don't know. I don't know what you can do to make this right. And I've seen marriages fail to reconcile because one person says, here's what I'm willing to give. You should accept me now. Because we're used to dealing in transactions with each other. But God's telling us that's not what real repentance looks like. It's not if you just do these three things, then then you've repented. You have to mean it. So how do we mean it? I want to take you back uh, to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 7, but let me, let me just summarize what's been happening. Uh, there is a, a man who is judging Israel, who is leading Israel, and uh, his name was Eli, and he wasn't a particularly good leader. He didn't uh, really point people toward God in the way that he was supposed to do it. But the people of Israel were under attack, which, of course, we know means that there was a covenant problem. And so what they did is they said, let's go get the Ark of God, because they thought, if we just have the Ark of God present with us, that's supposed to symbolize and actually, in some sense, be God's holy presence among his people, a physical manifestation of it. If we just have the Ark of God and we go out to fight, then we will win. Then God will be happy with us, right? This transactional sort of thing. So that's what they do. They go out, they take the ark, they fight the Philistines, they lose. And the ark of God is captured by the Philistines. And the people of Israel are now at their very lowest ebb that they've been so far in their history. God has completely abandoned them, they believe. Now, in the meantime, the Philistines, are, they take uh, the ark of God to their, the temple of their god, Dagon. They say, look how great Dagon is. He defeated the god of the Israelites. They leave the ark in the, in the temple of Dagon. They get up the next morning and they find that the, the idol of Dagon has fallen over before the ark. They're like, huh, well, that's really strange. So they put it up again. You know, they go back to bed and they wake up the next morning. They find that now Dagon has fallen and he's broken in front of the ark of God. It's sort of like God was trying to say something in the midst of that. I'll leave that up to your judgment. But eventually, the ark comes back to Israel. The people of of, uh, Philistia, the Philistines, not only is Dagon fallen down in front of the ark, kind of like Israel's God is greater than theirs, but they start getting tumors and sores and dying. And so they're like, we got to get rid of this ark. So they put it on a cart and they say, you know, now it's God's business. And the cart wanders somehow back to Israel. It's all very coincidental. The people of Israel uh, find that the ark has returned. And what are they going to do? 
Here's what happens. Chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, beginning uh, halfway through verse 2, because it's divided in a weird way here. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will, you've just lost a great military battle, remember? And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. How do we repent? Got to mean it. But we can't always just drum up all that meaning in our hearts, can we? Sometimes there are things we know we ought to do. We might even want to do them, but we don't. We still don't mean them. I'm angry about it. You know, it's going to cost me something. I'm scared. We're struggling to really mean it. So here's what we do. You rely on God alone. You look around and you say, what in these circumstances is propping me up? Maybe you know, you've lost this sense of assurance that, that God really loves you and cares for you and has rescued you. And you're saying, how do I make that up in my life? And so maybe you start showing up to more and more stuff. Like maybe if I do more, then I can feel better about myself in front of God. Or maybe on the other hand, you say, maybe if I, if I uh, sing louder, at church, right? The, uh, I, I normally sing kind of quietly, but now I'm going to sing loud because the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord and I can do that. Or maybe you start looking for your, your assurance in other places. You start looking to the people around us. You start saying, hey, you know, am I okay? Am I a decent person? Am I all right? Can you, can you give me some encouragement here? Maybe we medicate in all sorts of different ways. Maybe, maybe we turn on the TV. I, can't, I don't want to think about it. I can't deal with it right now. You know, maybe just time heals all wounds. <laughs> so maybe if I back off you know, and stop thinking about it, things will be okay in the future. Do you find, by the way, that that method works really well with lots of things in your life? Maybe if I ignore it, it will go away. But what did Samuel tell Israel? He said, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Why was this such a big sacrifice for the people of Israel? It's because their God just lost. Their God just abandoned them. Because they look and they say, well, the Philistines' God must be pretty strong because that's what ancient war was. It was a test between the gods. That's what everyone understood. And so Samuel is saying, I want you to find every ally that you could possibly have and get rid of it, except for God. I want you to rely on him totally and completely, just Yahweh, not Dagon, not Baal, not the Ashtoreth, nobody else. I don't want you to trust in your chariots and your horses, which was easy because they didn't really have any. You're just going to trust only in Yahweh. See, what does that look like for us? We, we talked about maybe you thought I'll work harder at church or something like that. Now, I'm all in favor of you working harder at church. I just want you to know that right off the bat. However, I am not in favor of you doing that to the, at the expense of your faith in God. God doesn't love you because of how hard you work at church. That's where you might experience God's love a little bit more. 
because you're seeking it and you're engaged looking for it. But that's not what God cares about primarily. He says, I want you to get rid of anything that will hold you up and support you except for God. And that's in the context of whatever you have lost. Whatever you know, covenant blessing has been withdrawn. If you are struggling with assurance, I want you to look to God for assurance. Not primarily to your family and your friends and everyone else. Now, God may speak through your family and friends. But we're looking for the voice of God, not theirs. And you know what? You can usually tell the voice of God because it is brutally honest without ever rejecting. Brutally honest without ever rejecting. I love that about our God. I had a boss uh, when I was at the bank. Uh, I was a management trainee. And eventually I got my own branch to manage. And I, I was still a trainee though. So I was assigned a mentor who is our division manager. And I made some mistakes. You know, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. There may have even been a lot of them. And I remember every time I went to her, I'd, I'd say, you know, hey, uh, boss, I messed up, and I need some help putting it right. And every time I did, she said, that's okay. We're going to fix that. We're going to make it right. And you know what? That was great the first time. It was good the second time. Didn't mean very much the third time. And by the fourth or the fifth time, you saw I made a lot of mistakes, right? By the fourth or the fifth time, it didn't mean anything at all. Because there is nothing honest accompanying it. Really? Do you really believe that? Because I keep costing you all this time with the mistakes that I'm making. Uh, she left the company, I hope not because of me, and then we had a new division manager, and he kind of became my mentor as well. And I, I didn't have to call him as often with mistakes because he'd been on the job longer and I'd learned some things. Uh, but I remember calling him once, and I said, you know, hey, boss, I messed up, and I need your help to make it right. And he said, you should know better than that. Now let's get it fixed. Are you going to do that again? No, sir. All right. And I got to tell you, when he said, you should know better than that, I was a little shocked. <laughs> it's not what I'd experienced before. It's not really what I wanted to hear. But when he said that and he continued accepting me afterward, I thought, this is someone I can trust. I, I can know that he actually cares about me and wants me to succeed because he, will, he won't hide it. He won't hide feelings of frustration. <laughs> he won't hide, you know, well, you know, you didn't really mess up. When I know I did, he'll be straight with me. I love that about our God. God is the same way, only more so. You will know it's God's voice because it tells you the real truth, even when it hurts, without rejecting you. I still love you. How do we repent? We repent by putting all of our hope on God. Saying, God, I know I wronged you. I know I didn't live up to your standards, but you are the only one who can restore me. Help me, God. How can we do that? Because if we know people... People get to a breaking point with us, don't they? The best people get to a breaking point with us where they will no longer tell us the truth and continue to accept us. 
Not only this, but relying on God only costs us something, doesn't it? Because God sometimes says things like, you need to go make that right with that other person. You had the argument, maybe you both did something wrong, but you go back and ask for forgiveness. That person's forgiveness is between them and me, but your forgiveness, you can, you need to take that step. You say, no, God, no, 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 I don't want to do that. They're not sorry. I can't ask for forgiveness from someone when they're not sorry for their role in this whole thing. Doing what God calls us to do costs us something. How can we do this? Well, here's what we need to hear. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious And he is compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. How can we repent when it costs us something? We can repent because of who God is. Because he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Did you know this is a quotation out of the book of Exodus? It's a quotation out of the book of Exodus when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai. But it's the second time God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai. See, the first time Moses goes up, God writes down the Ten Commandments, and and Moses then takes the tablets down to the people of Israel. And do you remember what he found the people of Israel doing when he got down there? Well, they'd gotten tired of waiting for Moses, so they made their own God. Everyone brought, you know, like their gold earrings and stuff like that. They melted them down. They made a a golden calf, and they were worshiping it when Moses got down the mountain. Moses then takes the Ten Commandments, and he throws them, and they break, and, you know, it turns into this big old thing. Everybody's angry. No one has done it right. Everyone is messed up. So Moses, I I love to think about this. Moses goes back up the mountain. He's like, hey, God, uh... So, you know, your people, (laughs) let me tell you about your people. And then maybe God is like, hey, Moses, where are the Ten Commandments? Moses is like, well, I broke them. I mean, I was mad. It was your people, right? That's exactly what Adam and Eve did, right? God came looking for Adam and Eve. He said, hey, where are you guys? And uh, they're hiding. He says, well, we're hiding because we're naked. God says, did you eat the fruit? They say, yeah, we ate the fruit. And, And Adam adds on very helpfully, well, I did it because Eve made me. I imagine Moses did something similar on the mountain. It's not my fault. You know, there were great commandments, God. I, I didn't break them, you know, on purpose. It was, it was your people. And then God writes new commandments for Moses. And then God appears before Moses. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate one, slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you get the context in which God says this is the context of forgiveness? God's saying, if you repent, I will make you right because that's who I am and that's what I do. But not only that, he relents from sending calamity. Now, here's what I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say that repentance will never cost you anything. It will. I think you know that already. But repentance often costs us surprisingly less than we thought it should. And that's God at work, too. But that's up to God. It's not up to you and I. We're the ones who did it wrong. We don't get to set the terms of making it right. God is the one wronged. He gets to set the terms. 
And that's why in verse 14 it says, who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. It's making the point that this is God's business, not yours. You repent, remember that God is gracious and compassionate, and remember that God restores at his discretion. That's why this passage starts off, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That's why I included a whole bunch of verses we're not going to get to today. Verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. It's God's business to decide what kind of graciousness to show, but he never fails to show graciousness. Well, we're not going to get to points three and four this morning. This is a point where we can stop. But as we look back, here's what we can do. When we feel that the blessings of God's covenant are being withdrawn from us, we start looking in our lives and saying something is not right. Like we talked about last week, our response is to say, okay, is there sin in my life? Have I been unfaithful to the covenant? And if we find that there is, our job is to repent. And repentance is a wholehearted trust on God, throwing ourselves on his mercy, saying, your judgment, not mine. Your power, not my ability. Your goodness, not my support structure. And that the reason we can do this is because we have a gracious and compassionate God who even if he doesn't always get rid of all of the cost of repentance is present in it and is our help.